John chapter 21 is where we're gonna spend just a few moments this, this morning. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had the joy of officiating a wedding for, for Corey and Miriam, who are part of our church. I don't think they're back from their honeymoon yet, but um, awesome wedding. It was, it's such a fun moment. They got married over at the Cordell, if uh, you've ever been there. It's just like a beautiful little wedding venue uh, right in the heart of Nashville, just a few miles from here. And one of the things that I love about doing weddings there is there's this kind of outdoor garden area where most people actually have the ceremony. And then there's this indoor place to have the reception. And then in between those two things, there's this great space to just kind of hang out and to get to know each other. And so um, I did the wedding, um, not to brag, I thought it was pretty awesome. Um, but uh, I think they're gonna be really good in the marriage. And um, uh, did the wedding and then we had the reception. But my favorite part of the evening was actually in between those two things. It was this hour kind of long moment in between the ceremony and the reception where we were just eating appetizers and having drinks and hanging out and fellowshipping with each other. And I, I was down hanging out with Sydney kind of in the garden area and we heard that there was fresh made guacamole, which is one of my favorite things on earth. And I'm like, I'm gonna go get some of that. And so I go up on the porch, just making a beeline for this fresh made guacamole. And I see this mosaic that's on this table. And if you don't know what a mosaic is, if you're not as you know, cultured as I am, um, mosaic's just a picture. Those of you that don't, don't know me, you're like, this guy's a conceited jerk. Uh, <laughs> I maybe am, but not because of that. Um, uh, Mosaic's just a picture, and it's made up of all of these smaller little pictures, these smaller little tiles. And I'm walking up towards the guacamole, and I see this, this mosaic of Corey and Miriam, and I kid you not, it just stops me in my tracks. It was, it was so well done. It was unbelievable. And I stop. I totally forget about the guacamole, and I'm just like looking at this mosaic, and it was amazing because as any good piece of art is capable of doing, it didn't just capture their likeness, not just their physical features, but it had this ability to almost capture their personality and their spirit. Have you ever seen a piece of art like that? Or a drawing or a painting or a picture where you see it and you go, that doesn't just look like them, it like captured them. And so I'm standing there and I'm just like looking at this mosaic and this couple's walking by, they'd already made it to the guacamole. And so they, they stop by and they go, whoa, this mosaic. And so all of a sudden we're, three of us were standing there, we're looking at this mosaic, it's, it's so beautiful. And so I grab some food and I walk back down into the garden and I kid you not, the first thing Sydney says to me, she goes, hey, did you see the mosaic? I'm like, I saw this mosaic. And so we're, we're talking about it. And in the midst of us talking about this mosaic of Corey and Miriam, her, her parents walk up and we're having this conversation about how excited we are for them. And then Miriam's sister walks up and I bet you can ask the first question she asked. What did she ask? She goes, have you seen the? Mosaic. Oh, that's lame. Have you seen the? Mosaic. Have you seen this mosaic? Have you seen this? And I said, yeah, and we're talking about how amazing it is. She said, do you know who made that? We said, no idea. And she, she points to her, Sydney's correcting me. Sid, Sydney's fact checking the story. Okay, uh, so I'm gonna have to correct this for the 11 o'clock because I just told the story wrong. <laughs> My wife, who was also present there for the moment, said uh, that's not how it happened. She said that she asked the question, who did the mosaic? <laughs> Whole sermon shot, faith is gone. Uh, <laughs> no, hey, the story's still gonna work because she asked, she said who, she said who, who did the mosaic and we found out her dad did. The, the, the father of the bride had made this mosaic. And it was unbelievable. Was that part true? Did that happen? Yeah, okay. Don't wanna get fact checked on that, okay. Um, he had made this mosaic and it, it was stunning because not only 
was like, wow, this guy is so skilled. Here's what struck me is the reason it captured their likeness and their personality was because it was done by someone who knew them and loved them intently. Like he had, he had just obsessed over every tile, every piece. He knew, he knew them, not just what they looked like, he, he knew who they were. And I was like, man, what a, what a stunning reality to be given this kind of gift of art by someone that knew and loved the subject that they had made this piece upon. And this is, this is sort of a, a metaphor for what we're attempting to do all summer, whether this is your first summer with us or you've been with us the last three or four weeks. Every summer, uh, every week throughout the summer, we are taking one little tile from the mosaic of Jesus's life, one moment from the gospels, from his life, his teaching, his ministry, from what he said, from what he did. We're taking one little tile that was written down by people that loved and knew Jesus so intently that had gazed upon him, that had thought about him, that had fallen in love with him. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they wrote these stories down. And each week, we're taking one of these tiles and we're just putting it in the mosaic of the larger picture of who Jesus is with this desire that the more we fix our eyes on him, that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter three would actually happen. And this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians three. He says, as we come together, in other words, this is not just a solo pursuit. As we come together to contemplate Jesus, to behold Jesus, to, to think about his personality, his character, his heart, as we come together to do these things, there's this transformation that happens in us as we fix our eyes on Jesus collectively in community by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's, and, and the train is like an amen. And each week we're just putting one tile in, we're just looking at one tile, and this, this morning we're looking at one of my favorite tiles from the mosaic of the Gospels on the picture of Jesus. And it's this moment from John chapter 21. And the background of this moment in scriptures, this takes place just a few days after Jesus was arrested, beaten, crucified, buried in a tomb that he did not own. On the third day, raised back to life by the spirit of God and he begins to appear to his disciples. And if I could sum up the moment that we're in in John chapter 21, John chapter 21 meets us at the crossroads of Jesus' greatest victory and his disciples' greatest failure. Jesus had just conquered sin, death, hell, shame, brokenness, and pain, his greatest victory, and his disciples had just dishonored one another and disowned Jesus publicly, and they had run back to their old lives. It's this moment where his victory is standing at the crossroads of their failure. And I want us to just go through the story this morning, and we're gonna, there's so many things we could explore, so many things we could talk about but I just want us to go through the story slowly and I want your eyes to fix on this tile of the mosaic of God's glory and for your heart to just be captured wherever it is that the Spirit of God wants to take you. And we're gonna break down the story in kind of four simple scenes. And the first one is this, that the story opens up with the disciples having been sidelined by their shame. The disciples, they are sidelined by their shame. They're, they're sitting on the sidelines of what God has made them for. They're no longer living into the destiny that God had created them for. And it starts like this, John chapter 21, starting in verse one. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way, Simon Peter, and Thomas, also known as Didymus, and Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were all together. And so seven of the original 12 apostles are here in this moment in the boat. A few days after their greatest failure, Jesus' greatest victory, 
verse three. And Peter says, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they didn't catch anything. And so I just want you to think about this, this moment. The story opens up, the movie opens up, and the disciples are sitting there sidelined in their shame. They're no longer living into the thing that God had made them for. And I love the way that verse one starts. I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but if you do, I like to underline and highlight things in my Bibles. The, the first word of verse one is really significant. It says afterward. And the question is after what? After Jesus's victory and after their failure, Jesus shows up again in this really beautiful, romantic, adventurous, comical, powerful, disruptive kind of moment. And he shows up to, to find the disciples. They have been sidelined by their shame. They're sitting there. And here's one of the things that just kind of strikes me. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own life. I've seen this in my life. I've seen this in the life of people that I care about. Is I'm convinced almost nothing has the power to rob you of God's divine destiny for you. Almost nothing has the power to rob you of God's divine destiny for you, like the prison of shame. There's something about shame that has this hold on us that will set us back. The shame that comes from things that we've done and the shame that comes from things that have been done to us. There's, there's something about this prison of shame that begins to just kind of perpetuate this lie in our life that goes something like this. Maybe God loves me, maybe God forgives me, maybe God can accept me, but God would never use me. The lie of shame makes us believe that we, because of who we've been or what has been done to us, the lie of shame makes us believe that we are second or third or fourth class citizens in the kingdom of God and maybe God's love is great and God's plans are great and God's grace is great and God's power is great, but his grace and power and goodness is not great enough for me. And that's the lie of shame. And these disciples who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, who had had a front row seat to his mercy and his kindness and his love and his grace and all of these things that had seen the miracles, that had experienced him dealing with the demons, that had witnessed the cross, that had seen the resurrection, that had hung out with him after the resurrection were caught in this place of shame. And where is it that the disciples have gone in this place of shame? They've gone back to the life that they knew before Jesus had called them in the first place. They've been sidelined. This is what shame does to us. It's the great thief of divine destiny. It says, maybe God loves you, maybe God can forgive you, but God never wants to use you again for great things. Over the last few years, I've got to watch a lot of kids' movies and little kids that happens. And one of the ones that I actually enjoy watching that we've gotten to watch a lot is The Lion King. And this really has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm just curious, if you've seen The Lion King, how many of you like the cartoon version best? Okay, what about the other version? I don't know what to call it. That's really, wow, really strong opinions. Um, I'm just curious, once again, nothing to do with the sermon, just curious what you felt about Lion King. Um, one of my favorite kids' movies, and spoiler alert, I'm gonna tell you how it goes, but that, if you don't know, it's your fault, it's 30 years old. And so, um, the, there's this moment in the Lion King where Simba, who is the, the young son of the king, sees his dad killed. And he begins to carry all of this shame because he thinks his dad died because of his actions. 
And maybe you remember this moment in the movie, Simba flees the kingdom. He flees the position that he was made for. He flees the calling on his life. And there's this kind of cute little like uh, music montage of him in this oasis with Timon and Puma. Maybe you remember this moment in the story. And it's one of the most lighthearted moments in the whole movie. But what we are watching there is someone that is fleeing their destiny because of shame. And he's there in this oasis and he's living his life and he's forfeited what it is that he is made for. And maybe you remember that great moment in the movie where the monkey shows up. I can't remember his name, but the monkey shows up and Fikri, right? Is that Rafiki? Oh, got it wrong. Rafiki. Um, so he shows up and shows up and, and he, the monkey's kind of the prophet in the movie. Do you remember that? He shows up and he reminds him of what it is that he was made for and he helps break him out of that place of shame. We all we need these moments. We need these moments where the Lord shows up and says, I know what was done to you. I know what you did. I know who you are when no one's looking and I'm not done with you. In February, I was preaching in Orlando and I got done teaching and this couple comes up in their early 60s and they're just weeping and I said, I said what's going on? What do you want me to pray for? He said, 25 years ago, the Lord invited us to do something. We know, knew so clearly that he invited us to do something. He goes, but we could not step into it because some of the choices I'd made in the past. And he goes, for 25 years, we've been saying no to what it is that God has made us for because we've been in this prison of shame. And I don't know if there's a week that goes by where I don't encounter somebody locked in the prison of shame. The husband that knows he wants to step up and to be the husband, the father, spiritual strength in his home that he knows God's made him for, but he can't step into it because there's that thing in the back of his mind, if I get close enough, she'll know what I've done, who I am, and so he sits on the sidelines. It's the young adult that goes, man, I know God's made me for more, but if anybody else in the room knew who I was in high school, it wouldn't work, couldn't do it, so we, we sit back and we, we, we sideline ourselves that thing that was done to you, you go, man, I'm no longer worthy. And, and we could just go around the room, we could just talk about these, these moments, but you've experienced this, I've experienced this, we've seen this, and this is where John chapter 21 shows up. These, these friends of Jesus at the crossroads of his greatest victory and their deepest heartache find themselves sidelined in shame, that's scene one. But I love, I love it, it doesn't stop there. It goes from them being sidelined in shame, the second scene, is they get surprised by Jesus. And I just wanna go through the next 10 verses pretty slowly. I, I, love, I love just what you begin to see about the personality of Jesus as you look at this mosaic, from the, this little tile in the mosaic from his life. Starting in verse four, it says, early in the morning, we'll find out later that this is right around sunrise, so it's early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, I've heard a lot of people talk about, why didn't they know it was Jesus and all this speculation? I wanna take just what I think is a really simple, kind of obvious approach on this. I don't know if you've ever like, been at a great distance from somebody when the lighting is not very good, but it is tough to see who a brother is. It's tough to see who a sister is. And so we'll find out later on, they're about 100 yards from, uh, yards from shore. It's sunrise, the lighting is not good. Peter hadn't had his eyes checked in some time. We don't know what's going on, but just last week I was at my family's house in Charleston and one of my favorite things to do is to get up and, and to go surfing, to be in the water at sunrise. And I'm just telling you, like when you're in the water 100, 150 yards out, you can't tell who anybody is up on the shore. 
So they're out, they're fishing, they've been up all night, they're tired, Jesus is off in the distance, they don't know it's him. Verse five, so he called out to them. This is a hilarious moment, by the way, I love this. He called out to them and he said, friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. This is like the most brotastic question. Um, you, you know this, when you walk past anyone fishing, what's the question, whether you know them or not, what's the thing you ask everybody when they're fishing? Somebody shout it out. Yeah, did you catch anything, right? Caught anything? Uh, you know, fish biting? You know, it's just like small talk. I love this hilarious moment. Jesus, he knows they haven't caught anything. He knows what he's about to do. He's standing on the shore and he's like, hey guys! Did you catch anything? I just imagine like him almost laughing when he says it. And the disciples are in the boat. They're fishermen. One of them cussed. You know, we have no idea who it was. They're like, this idiot, you know. They're not happy about the question. No, they've answered verse six. This is great. This is so great. Look at the comedy in this. Jesus said, throw your net out on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, they still don't know this is Jesus, remember? They would have been standing in a boat that was 26 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. I want you to just think about the absurdity of this statement. He goes, you fished all night. You've caught nothing. You don't know me from anybody. Take your net and move it seven and a half feet to the other side and you'll catch a bunch of fish. Now someone's really cussing in the boat. <laughs> but for some reason, maybe they were delirious. Maybe they were desperate, who knows? They do it, and I love this, verse six. When they did it, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish, and something clicks in the disciples. They go, whoa, whoa, whoa. We remember a moment like this. Maybe you remember this moment. Three and a half years earlier, when Jesus was calling the disciples to leave everything and follow them, it began with a miraculous catch of fish after a really disappointing night. Do you remember that? I love this, verse seven. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John just kind of flexing on the rest of them. He's like, you know, he likes me the best. He goes, it's the Lord. That guy that we can't, that's the Lord. And I love Peter's response. This is like so Peter. As soon as he heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Now this is the most nonsensical thing ever. Like don't, don't just read this. Don't let this be two dimensional. Like have you ever been in a moment where you weren't expecting to go swimming? You saw a great place to swim and you're like, let's swim. What do you do in that moment? Do you put clothes on or take clothes off? A few weeks ago, Sydney and I were with Micah out in the desert. We come across this river and it's like, let's swim. And we're not looking for clothes to put on in that moment. This is how disoriented Peter is. Peter's like, there's Jesus, puts on his jacket, jumps in the water, doesn't dive. It's not graceful. I just imagine he just falls over the edge of the boat, you know, belly flop. You know, one of the disciples is like, that's a 4.2. Another one's like, that's a 3.1. You know, someone that was feeling bad for him, it's a seven, you know, and whatever it was, like he splashes into the water and he begins swimming. Look at this. Then the other disciples followed in the boat, <laughs> followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. I just imagine they're looking at their buddy who's wearing a ski jacket and he still has his work boots on and he's trying to swim and he's not moving very fast and they're just rowing and they're like, hey bro, do you wanna get in the boat? He's like, no, I got it. He's like, this is more efficient, you know, or whatever. And they're just, they're just, I just want you to just picture the scene. Guys, this is the scene. They're sidelined in their shame. Jesus surprises them on the shore and every little moment just pops with life. Pops with personality, 
When they landed, verse nine, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have. I love that he doesn't need their fish. He just wants to use them. He wants them to participate. He loves them so much. Verse 11. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat. He dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 to be exact. But even with so many, the net was not torn. I just love this moment. I'm like, here Jesus is. He surprised them, this miraculous moment. He's on the shore, and one of the bros still took a moment to count the fish. You know, it's like one, two, three. And they're like, guys, Jesus is waiting. He's like, hold on, hold on, 22, 23. Just, just picture the humanity of this moment. Catches the fish. And Jesus said to them, come, I have breakfast. This is a huge moment. In the first century, who you ate with was more significant than who you mated with. It was a sign of acceptance, of peace, of covenant. It's the reason Jesus' enemies were constantly coming at him by accusing him of eating with sinners. They go, he eats with sinners. That shows that he's in alignment with sinners, in peace with sinners. And so here Jesus is with the very ones that had abandoned him, betrayed him, dishonored him, run from him, and he's giving them this peace offering. He goes, come, hey, let's have breakfast. Verse 13, and Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he, raised, after he was raised from the dead. So I want you to just notice this moment as it unfolds. It starts with them being sidelined in their shame and then Jesus shows up and he surprises them on the shore that morning. And I just want you to notice how different Jesus is from you and from me, from us. What is your natural reflex towards people when they hurt you? For me, it's to run, it's to hide, it's to create barriers, distance. That's a human response. I'm not, even, I'm not even downplaying that. I go, that's just what we do as humans. But what you see unfolding in John chapter 21, it is a divine response. Jesus chases these guys down. He seeks them out. It's unbelievable. A few years ago, a dear friend of mine really hurt me. And almost subconsciously, I found myself for a season not even wanting to, to eat at restaurants near where he lived or go to coffee shops near where he lived or go to the grocery store. And I didn't even really realize I was doing that, but I was just so worried I'd run into him because I've been so hurt. I don't know if you ever felt that before. And I go, man, aren't you glad God's not like us? <laughs> that when we disown him and dishonor him, he comes after us. He shows up. Scene number three, they get hurt by Jesus. And this is maybe not the part of the story, that, the turn in the story that you imagine it taking. This is so important, so important. Verse 15, they sat down and they're, they're eating around the fire. They're eating this, this meal. And I love this, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, like, you know that moment when your mom uses your full name to get your attention? Is that ever a good thing or a bad thing? Somebody help me out. When somebody uses your full name, what's about to happen? Is that good or bad? bad? It's bad. Like, you know, when my mom would say David Jonathan, I'm like, oh, I'm in trouble. That's my middle name, Jonathan. Um, if she said David Jonathan Clayton Jr., it's like, oh, this is, uh, this is terrible. Like, she put the last name and the junior on the end. Like, this is not gonna go good. And I love this, this moment. Jesus, across the fire, he looks at Peter and he says, hey, Peter, son of John, same phrase that Jesus used to affirm Peter when Peter had actually confessed Jesus as Lord. It's beautiful, all the stuff that's happening here. 
begins to ask him this question. He goes, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your friends? Do you love me more than this life of fishing? Do you love me more than this? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was what? Somebody shouted out, Peter was, come on guys, help me out. Peter was, he was hurt. He was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I think sometimes there's this tendency, this is what shame does to us. Shame puts us in this prison and we go, let's just ignore it, let's forget it. And we even have this phrase that we use in our culture. I'm just curious if you've ever used this or heard this before. Time heals all what? Yeah, but it doesn't, does it? Jesus heals all wounds. Time lessens the blow. Time helps us compartmentalize. Time helps us move on in some ways. But Jesus is the great healer of wounds. And before he could bring healing, he actually had to bring a touch into Peter's life that was gonna hurt. Because so often in, in, in the kingdom of God, when Jesus is doing what he does best, so often the first touch of healing can feel a little bit painful. Here, Peter and the boys have made their way into shore. They're having this breakfast. Jesus has recreated the miracle in which he called them to himself three and a half years earlier, but he has not just recreated the miracle. He has recreated this moment of their failure. And there's so many poetic realities and layers here. I just want you to think about this. A few days earlier, Peter had stood up in front of all of his friends right after they ate the Last Supper. Jesus had just said in front of everybody, all of you are gonna deny me, disown me. You're gonna fall away from me. And you remember what Peter did in that moment? Peter stood up and he essentially said, hey, Jesus, you don't actually know me. Even if all of my friends disown you, he goes, I'm willing to die with you. And do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He goes, Peter, I'm telling you the truth. Tonight, before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows twice, you're gonna disown me three times. Peter had dishonored all of his friends. And here's this moment where they're sitting around the fire with all of his friends and Jesus goes, hey, Peter, let's talk about something. He goes, do you really love me more than all of these guys did? Are you more courageous? Are you more committed? Or are you more bought in? Do you, do you really love me more than the life that you led? So Jesus re, recreates this moment of pain. But he goes a step further later on that very same night around sunrise, this time that they're sitting on the beach in John 21. Do you remember where Peter was? He was sitting around a campfire in the courtyard of Caiaphas, who was the high priest, the man that was leading the charge against the, the wrongful arrest, beating, crucifixion of Jesus. And as Peter was sitting around that campfire across the courtyard, Jesus was being beaten and wrongfully accused. And this young girl that worked in Caiaphas's house, she comes up to Peter and she says, hey, weren't you friends with Jesus? No, I don't know him, he denies him. She asks again, he denies a second time. She asks a third time, he cusses her out, says, I do not know the guy. And as he does that, across the flickering glow of a campfire, the smell of smoke rising in his nostrils, the scripture tells us he sees Jesus and his heart breaks with shame because of what he's just done. 
And so there's this moment, Jesus sets him back down by a campfire with his friends whom he had dishonored, with the glow flickering against Jesus's face, with the smell of smoke rising in Peter's nostrils. And Jesus says, hey, let's go back to this place of shame and of pain and let's deal with it. Because Jesus knew that the future, the destiny that he had for Peter, the destiny he had for him could not be received, could not be received unless he dealt with the past. The first touch of healing, so often it feels hurtful. And Jesus, he has this way of doing this. I'll just tell you one quick story. I remember a few years ago when our church was entering into that month of prayer and fasting that we call Awaken, and we had, we had rented out the Ryman, and we had leaders from all across the city that had joined with us to pray. Maybe you remember that night. And people would just sign up for tickets randomly. You know, we had no control over it. People would sign up for tickets. you just get paired by people that you didn't know. And and so uh, we heard this story after the fact. There were so many cool miracles that happened that night, but I'll, just, I'll tell you one of them. Uh, there was this man who, when he was uh, in middle school, he lived several hours from here, but when he was in middle school, there was an older man that spoke something into his life that had wounded him deeply 30 or 35 years earlier. It hurt him so badly. And for 30 or 35 years, he'd been carrying all of this shame. He had been kind of operating with this sort of orphaned mentality because of this really hurtful word. And so he and his wife, who have now moved to Nashville, they're now leaders here in a church here in Nashville. They get their tickets for the Ryman. They show up and they sit down in their seats and he looks next to them. And can you guess who's sitting next to him? He's sitting next to the man that had hurt him years ago who had also moved to the city of Nashville. Neither one of them knew it. This man described this moment. He said he was sitting there. It was his campfire moment. The smoke was rising in his nostrils. The memories were coming back. He said the first hour he was sitting there, he couldn't pay attention to anything. The only thing he was thinking about was how much he wanted to leave. And maybe you remember that night, there were multiple moments in the night where we'd have people get in groups and pray. And there's this moment where we said, we want to turn to the person next to you. And he had to turn. And that other man had to turn. And the spirit of God showed up in that moment and said, what used to bring you pain, I want to bring life and healing. And this is the fourth scene of the story. It's not just that Peter was hurt by Jesus. It's that he's gonna be healed. He's gonna be restored by Jesus. That Jesus is not just bringing him back to this moment to stir up pain and suffering. He goes, hey, I wanna give you a mulligan. I wanna give you a do-over. I wanna give you an opportunity to try this again, buddy. He goes, you denied me three times around a fire. You dishonored your friends. He goes, but I'm the God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances, and I wanna give you another shot. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Look back at verse 17 with me. Peter was hurt by this. He said, but Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, what? He said, feed my sheep. He goes, Peter, I've got something for you. I've got a destiny for you. I've got a, a, a thing that I wanna use you for, but your future, your future demands that I heal the pain of your past. And there, there's so many things, like when, when I think about like this, this little tile from the mosaic of Jesus' life out of John chapter 21, I look at Jesus and I go, oh my goodness, who is this guy? His creativity, his strength, his, his humor, his playfulness, his, his persevering graciousness, his mercy, his, his desire to, to do what none of us would do. None of us would have blamed Jesus if he would have declared relational bankruptcy after the resurrection. 
If Jesus would have come out of the grave and said, you know what, I'm done with all those lame friends, new friend group, here we go. But what does Jesus do? Jesus spends the next 40 days chasing down everybody that abandoned him so he could send them into what God had made them for. There is nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like him. Guys, there's nobody like him. Nobody is gracious, kind, strong, loving, compassionate, merciful. There is nobody like him. And when you see him, there's something that begins to stir in us. And Paul says, when we behold his glory together, the real Jesus, not the two-dimensional Jesus, not just the Sunday school Jesus, not just the Southern kind of, I made him what I wanted him to be, fit him into a box. But when we, when we deal with this beautiful, playful, disruptive, creative, almost uncomfortably gracious God, something stirs up in us. And it demands more than just a casual church attendance, a casual lip service. When we see him as he is, we go, okay, Lord, all of our affection, all of our allegiance, all of our life, here I am, send me. Like when you really behold this God, when you really behold this Jesus, man, it changes the way you see God. Jesus isn't standing on the shore going, hey guys, get out of the, come on. How many times did I tell you we're done with the fishing? (laughs) He's so different than us. It changes the way we see God. It changes the way we see ourselves. Where we go, man, I need the Lord to show up and to restore me. I need the Lord to put his finger on that place in me that I've tried to hide for years and to heal it. Changes the way we see others. On Friday, our family made the Terrible mistake of we ended up on Broadway on Friday afternoon and we try to avoid downtown Friday through Sunday at all costs, but we're there and just so much craziness going on. And, and there's this moment though where the Lord just was reminding me, hey, if you think that I'm done with them, then you have way too small of a view of who I am. And their story's not finished. And just like I've shown up in your life, man, I'm showing up in their life. Meet me there. I love this little tile from the mosaic of Jesus. And I just go, man, what would happen if we were just a church and we just stood and we just gazed upon him and went, okay, all I am, all that I have, it's, it's yours. And so I don't, I don't know where you find yourself in the story this morning. Here's how we're gonna end our time. There's some of you here this morning and you are in that prison of shame. There's something you need to confess. There's something you need to invite God into. We're gonna have some men and women at the Respond Banner. You can come, we'd love to pray with you. I'm gonna probably say this every week this summer. If you have not signed up for a freedom prayer or been a part of a freedom prayer, this is one of the places where Jesus shows up around the campfires of our life in profound ways. And there'll be a waiting list to get in. It's worth the waiting list. Sign up for a freedom prayer. Share it with a friend. Let us pray for you today. Let us ask God in that place of pain and shame so that he can release you into what he has for you. There's somebody here this morning on the other side of that restoration process. And I just wanna encourage you as, as we're receiving the bread, as we're receiving the cup, this is our meal where we're sitting on the beach with Jesus this morning and we're meeting Christ as we break the bread and as we take the cup. And just like Peter and the rest of the disciples, we're reminded that we have a destiny, not because Jesus just forgot what had happened in our past, but because he paid for those sins on the cross. And so as you break the bread, as you take the cup, it is a declaration of the sufficiency of who Christ is and what he's done. And so this morning, as we sit around the meal, as we sit around that proverbial campfire, I just wanna encourage you to testify. Where's God meeting you in your place of shame? Where's God meeting you in your place of pain?
And let's see what God wants to do now. Let's stand together. I'm gonna pray over us. And I'll send us into a time of communion. Communion's on the tables around the room, on the bar, on the sides. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. And we just thank you for who you are and for what you're doing. And God, this morning, would, would you just, any place where we have dishonored others, where we have disowned you, where we have been imprisoned by the choices of our past or the things that have been done to us, God, would you just reach down into the mud of our lives? Would you lift us up? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you heal God, in profound ways, as we break the bread, as we take the cup this morning, would there be this testimony just to the, the beauty, the glory, the significance of Christ among us and in us and with us? God, would you use us, those that are on the other side of that moment of restoration, would you use us to chase people down that are running, that are locked in prisons of shame and to, and to help draw them home? God, would you use us in profound ways this week to do that? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.